Okay, here we go. May the 6th, uh, 2012, lecture discussion number 67 on the book of Romans. And as I just told the group here, as most of you are aware, yesterday was Cinco de Stevo. And as per usual, as, as per expectations, many people called and sent letters as a means of celebration, uh, commemorating uh, the day, the tradition, commemoratory, if you will. So, uh, and, and it may surprise you, and people ask me all the time, how did it become Cinco de Stevo? And I'll address that in a minute, but it's also surprising to know that very few, um, they don't even know uh, why it's called Cinco de Stevo. And that's shocking, and your gasps are understandable. Yes, yes, good, you did good. There's an Internet audience, so um, uh, that's exactly what we wanted. Anyway, for the, the two or three people I'm, I'm guessing that don't know uh, why it is called Cinco de Stevo out there in the world, uh, that they're probably in China, I suspect, because we're big in China and they are unmindful of the origin of Cinco de Stevo. For their sakes, I thought today uh, it would be sympathetic to explain once more how it derived its name, uh, the wellspring, if you will. And it's also astonishing, uh, equally astonishing, that there is a competing tradition on May the 5th that, uh, I know, your, your gasps, uh, it's, uh, thank you, um, so it's more, all the more important to uh, uh, handing, uh, making sure that we hand off Cinco de Stevo to the next generation. So I have that in mind. It, it, to that end, I have a couple of letters. Uh, the first is um, from Australia, um, Peter from Australia. And um, Peter is uh, clearly a learned historian who has... Uh, he's devoted a lot of his research, uh, and I'm certain he's published a, a multi-volume tome of some kind uh, on the prophetical significance of Cinco de Stevo, uh, and he gave me this overview that uh, that is just wonderfully done, and, and I have to take my glasses off and read it carefully. Uh, 5 May is an auspicious day. Mexican Independence Day? The day when they decided to create a national feast day to honor Steve's birthday. I think if Alaska was the chosen land, it might have been the Feast of Trumpets. It wouldn't be warm enough to choose an earlier date to blow it. Happy Cinco de Stevo. Think of the amazing things that have happened on Cinco de Stevo. 553, the Second Council of Constantinople, the Fifth Ecumenical Council, opens. 1260 on Cinco de Stevo, Kublai Khan becomes ruler of the Mongol Empire. Steve Cronister becomes overload of, over, overlord, sorry, of the great internet empire. 1382, Battle of Beaverhausfeld. Population beats drunken army. This really happened on Cinco de Stevo. 1494, on the second voyage to the New World, Christopher Columbus cites Jamaica. Uh, so what? <laughs> 1816, American Bible Society organized in New York. 1834, Charles Darwin expedition begins at Rio Santa Cruz. By the way, uh, certain things get announced on Cinco de Stevo because the people who announce them are very well aware of the tie to Darwin. And that happened actually uh, right on right on cue. So you could pay attention to the uh, 
Darwinians uh, as they uh, celebrate and, and uh, make announcements on Cinco de Stevo. 1925, John T. Scopes arrested for teaching evolution in Tennessee. Um, it, it, uh, let's see, 1893, panic of 1893, great crash of the New York Stock Exchange. It, clearly, Peter in Australia has spent a lot of time on Cinco de Stevo, as he should, as, as he absolutely should. Possibility heard that Steve's retirement plan is to wait on the rapture. 1912, Soviet Communist Party newspaper Pravda begins publishing. Uh, 1930, first woman to fly solo from England to Australia takes off, Amy Johnson. She decided to do that on Cinco de Stevo. She decides there is nothing better to do until fearless preacher Steve Cronister posts his Internet sermons online. 1975, and I happen to know this, by the way, that tells you, because I was a, uh, I really liked uh, Charlie Finley's uh, approach to baseball. 1975, A's release, really, I'm sorry, A's release pinch runner Herb Washington. Uh, he played in 104 games without batting, pitching, or fielding, and he stole 30 bases. What he was was a sprinter, and so he would, uh, Finley would use him as a pinch runner. And uh, he scored 33 runs. Uh, uh, it really was a fascinating idea. Steve's stealing soul from the enemy every chance he gets and scoring wins against the apostate church whenever he can. Go Steve. 1979, Voyager 1 passes Jupiter. Steve's sermons are heard by angels and treasured by believers. Why send them to void zero? Or was that void one? You have to know your voids. Numerous Pulitzer Prizes were awarded on 5th of May in the past, so what does the future hold? In 2014, the liberal-leaning Pulitzer Prize awards Steve Cronister their literary gong for his sermons titled, Another Warm and Fuzzy Sermon. Sorry, fake sorry. And then his last comment, uh, 1912, Soviet Communist Party newspaper Pravda begins publishing. I read that one, but he, he writes this, darn. I meant to include a line like, 5 May, Steve's Christian manifesto begins as the doctor slapped his posterior as he emerged into the world. His first pleas to the Lord began. Those understanding tongues would have realized those tortured cries from that baby actually meant, Lord, rapture me now. And then he wrote, happy birthday, young fellow. So that tells you that. Peter, who has been delightful, and we really appreciate you being out there, Peter. So thank you for all of that. That clearly was a lot more work than uh, anyone ought to do on the explanation of Cinco de Stevo. Um, Sharon from Texas, she sent me a, uh, a uh, what, did this, what is it called? An e-card, yes. And it had sound and everything. And it had little happy faces that were bouncing. And this really cool music, so I like that a lot. And it's, and she wrote this. Those happy faces bouncing off the walls are all of us listeners out here in internet land rejoicing that we found you. Well, at least the one, uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't say that right. We found you and your teachings. Well, at least the teachings we can understand. Well, at least the teachings we understand enough to ask questions about. Well, at least the teachings that you actually answer our questions. 
blessings in our beloved Lord, Sharon from Texas. And she also wrote me uh, a a couple of questions that I'm going to address here as well. So, Sharon, we're just delighted to hear from you, as always. Okay, enough of that until next year. But that explains Cinco de Stevo. People ask me how old was I when I decided to call it Cinco de Stevo. Um, I was six. I was in uh, Whittier, Alaska, going to a one-room schoolhouse, and Mrs. Miller was my teacher, and I think I was in the first grade because they didn't have kindergarten, uh, garden or whatever it's called, and uh, my parents wanted to get rid of me. Imagine that. Uh, and you had to walk through tunnels, underground tunnels, to get to school because the snowfall was so great in Whittier back then in those days. It was easily 40, 50 feet high every winter. And there's pictures of me standing on top of an electrical um, uh, pole, um, um, you know, a light pole, 35 feet in the air, but it was buried, and we had dug out the top of it, me and my brother, looking for uh, you know, how many kilowatts we could find. It was something that you did back in those days. You know, you, you just climb up the mounds of snow and dig for electrical lines. It was great fun. But you had to dig yourselves out every year, and all the windows were completely covered. It was, it was the first fire or, uh, uh, trap, probably. But um, that's what was Whittier, and I would go to school. And I remember going um, as a six-year-old, and there was all of this music that was uh, clearly uh, different than what I was used to. And everybody had hats on, and they had, uh, that I didn't know what it was, but they had suspended things with candy in it all on my birthday. And I was really thrilled. I thought this was cool. And they called it uh, Cinco de something, and I assumed that obviously it must be me. And so that's when I really remember going, okay, even though they told me it wasn't about me, I'm making it about me, and I have called it Cinco de Stevo ever since. Never have missed a year. For, what's it been now? Uh, it's been nine or ten years now. If, if you're gonna, I was telling, I was telling King George earlier today when he came in, if you're gonna lie, let's just go for it. I mean, nobody's gonna believe me anyway, so I might as well say I'm 20. And I look horrible for 20, but I'll take it. But anybody, anyway, I, that's my earliest memory. And, and all my coaching years, and if Louie were here or, or Katrina, anybody that played for me, every time, uh, well, yes, you, but I mean who actually had me when they were in high school and I was coaching the school district. Um, every year, regardless if it was track or volleyball or wrestling or football, whatever it was, I always made sure they knew it was Cinco de Stevo. And to this day, people call me on the 5th of May to remind me it's Cinco de Stevo. My brother did last night, 10 o'clock at night. He's in Milwaukee, and he realized, wait a minute, it's Cinco de Stevo. So I have polluted the whole world now, and it's great, and I'll keep doing it as long as I can. Okay, enough of that. Until next year. Before we return to Exodus 21, let me put these on the board, because this is it. Exodus 21... As you know, we've been there for a while. We have uh, Deuteronomy, uh, it's also 21, 18 through 21, and we have Leviticus 20. That's where we are today. But before we go to there, uh, as I promised, I wanted to talk 
about something that Sharon asked me because it's very important and I know it, it affects her. Uh, she asked me about Alzheimer's and that's something that pr- plagues my family and is likewise a concern for Sharon's family. And Alzheimer's is, as you know, it's a neuromechanical deterioration and it is progressively so. My mother is one of the longest surviving Alzheimer's victims in the country now and she's uh, 86 right now and she's had it probably since her 40s. We're not sure how long um, she's had it, to, to be honest, but she uh, showed uh, or she exhibited signs of it when she was really quite young, and it didn't take hold on her dramatically until she was 70. Anyway, it's a progressive disorder. It is slowly destroying the physical brain, and Sharon rightly recognizes the impact of the physical failure of the brain on the free will capability of the mind. And she uh, wrote me or sent me a card, and uh, I thought I brought it. Oh, I did. Um, And she wanted to say blessings to uh, one of the best. Oh, I'm sorry, I'll skip that. Thanks for sharing your scriptural teaching. No, that's not what I wanted either. Anyway, she just wanted Cliffside to know that she uh, appreciates us, and, and it was a happy birthday card. So thank you very much, Sharon who figured out the origin of Cinco de Stevo on her own. But she she wanted to know in that card, she wanted to know, um, as the brain deteriorates, the physical failure of the brain, it obviously affects the free will capability or the choice of the mind. In other words, as the condition of the brain uh, disintegrates, the will of the mind is negatively impacted. Do you understand that? It's got to be, right? The mind with Alzheimer's has sensory deprivation on a massive scale. Think of it that way, if you will, and cannot reason effectively. The incoming data uh, to an Alzheimer's victim uh, is essentially unreadable. The the information is coming through the eyes and coming through the ears and coming into the the nose and through the mouth and, and through the touch of the skin, and it's going into the brain, but it is unreadable by the mind. It is just, it's chemical processes... And it's, it, it's electrical processes, and it, it is, neurons are all moving as best they can, uh, but the mind cannot interpret it. And so the mind, uh, this leads to the mind being confused eventually. And by the way, very much like the case of a psychological warfare technique, uh, where I am intentionally manipulating the mind by confusing it, by sending it information that is unreadable or confusing. And therefore, Sharon asks, um, what is our accountability in such a condition or a state? The mind has become unsound. The mind is fragile and is no longer functioning because it cannot possibly uh, make sense of the information it's getting. Now, as an aside, it's also possible and proven to be the case that sometimes the received physical data is reaching the mind intact and the mind has the ability to understand it perfectly but what's wrong? Yeah, it can't express. Because the expression side of the, of the equation, I have the reading side and the expressing side. Sometimes I have a reading problem in the sense that I can't read the information. The other times, it's very likely that this is the case of my mother. The other day, she said something to my sister, uh, a word. She was able to blurt out a word that actually fit the context. Uh, She was blessing my sister for sneezing, something that she would always do. So for a brief instant, the expression portion functioned. Bang, and out came Gazoon type. So, 
what's wrong with her? Is it the reading side or the expression side? The expression of the mind is unintelligible to us um, other than by extraordinary medical procedures and systems. I talked about that a couple of weeks ago. In any event, the will can't be discerned. We cannot understand what the will is. The will is confused at worst and non-functioning possibly. And so Sharon's question then becomes centered on God's protection of believers who are so infirmed. Do you understand how she's gotten from the brain being injured or dysfunctional by disease or by injury, coma, brain injury, Alzheimer's, all the same. So she got from that to recognizing its impact on our free will. And then she went from there to God's protection. You see how she did it or why she's doing it. It's actually perfectly framed. God's protection or God's security for the believers so infirmed or God's eternal security, to say it perfect. Those are all and one the same. Our salvation is assured. Let's get that off the table. That is a absolute biblical true doctrine. The assurance of our salvation. So, God's protection is our salvation. Once saved, you cannot be unsaved. I'll get to that in a minute. So, if that's true, and it is true, and it's absolutely true, all that can be lost in somebody who has this condition is their witnessing capability. They can't witness because they can't express their will. And now also um, brought up a lot of times in this context is tribulational concerns. And they're not applicable to us. Do you understand what I mean by tribulational concerns? The rise of the Antichrist is a post-rapture event. Okay? So you don't have to deal with it. My mother doesn't have to deal with it. Sharon doesn't have to deal with it. I don't have to deal with it. None of us have to deal with it. The tribulation is a post-rapture event. But let's just talk about it a second. Will the Antichrist put his mark on infants? Will he? Has he read the Bible? Well, I bet he has. He knows that anyone who willfully takes the mark of... How did I explain that? He knows that anyone who willingly takes the mark of the beast will be what? Condemned. Will he put his mark on infant children? Will people go to the Antichrist with their child in hand and have the, have the mark of the beast put on their children? Are parents going to be that stupid? Yeah. Did the child willfully accept the mark? Will the Antichrist find my mother in an Alzheimer's state when she has no ability to express her will and put his mark on her? Will he go to the Alzheimer's uh, uh, facilities and go around and mark them all? Of course he will. Will it matter? No. It won't matter. Because you ask these questions. Is God omniscient? Is God the creator of time? Is God pure good? The answer is yes, all three times. So let me 
just go naturally in the progression. Has God, and this is, I'm putting in my little fingers up in the air in quotation marks, because this is doctrinally an unsound thing to say, but I'll do it for your sakes. Has God anticipated the act of the Antichrist? Any actions that he would do? Is God able to know what they are? Yes, he's omniscient outside of time, see omniscient creator of time. And his goodness requires, it demands that a solution exists. Um, and, and that means and the only solution, by the way, there's only one of it. And not only that it exists, but it has to be invoked. It has to be enforced and effective. And remember now, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6, 6. It is impossible to crucify Christ again. It is impossible to put him to open shame. That is one of the two impossibles. It's also impossible for the saved to fall away, to slip out of the hand of God. Both of those impossibles require that the other one be true, if that makes sense. It is impossible to crucify Christ again, and therefore, and it is impossible to put him to shame, and therefore it is impossible for a believer to fall away. And it is impossible for a believer to fall away, therefore it is impossible to crucify Christ again. The two are hand and glove, if you will. Both impossibles require each other to be true. So to sum up, have no position that calls into question the omniscience of God, the power of God, or the goodness of God. You do not have to worry about losing your salvation to the Antichrist in the tribulation if you have Alzheimer's. Because God is good. God is omniscient. God is the creator of time. The tribulation is a post-rapture event. And it is impossible to crucify Christ again. Don't have anything that violates the omniscience of God, the power of God, the goodness of God, the solution that God will invoke, will enforce, will affect, or anything that violates the two impossibles. And again, don't worry about the tribulation. Don't worry about you being in a hospital unable to express your will or being in a position where you're being psychologically or pharmaceutically manipulated by someone who is evil. Has God thought of that? Yeah, see that creator of time part again. But you should always know the tribulation will not be for the church. It is not for the church. It is the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble. Uh, you've got your 12-step betrothal system, Hebrew betrothal system. The bride, the church has been snatched away by the bridegroom and uh, and is not subject to the tribulation. It is subject to the judgment seat of Christ. And hopefully, Sharon, that addresses all of your question where she said that I don't do what? What did she say? She says, I didn't answer questions. I just did, I hope. And if not, Sharon, call me. You know the number. Okay, let's try and wrap up Leviticus 20 and Exodus 21 and Deuteronomy 21 and connect it to Romans 2, 11 and James 2. So let me repeat a couple of verses. Uh, Let me just pound away here. For there is no partiality with God. No partiality with God, Romans 2.11. God has no partiality. And you have to begin now to go, okay, what's the impact of that doctrinally to me? 
Um, and First Peter one seventeen. And if you call on the Father who is without partiality, who judges without partiality, essentially, God is perfect in His judgment. Duh, He has to be. And no one, therefore, receives a sentence that is not perfect. And no one is treated with partiality. No one cuts the line. That's how God runs it. And we should know that. It should be a plaque on the front door over there. For with God there is no partiality. No. And we should fight to make sure it is true of us. Especially as a church. Somebody comes in here with $100 bills sticking out of his pocket. What happens to him? That's right. Last in the buffet line. We certainly don't treat him with deference or her with deference because there is no partiality. Somebody comes in here who is a powerful uh, a political figure, no partiality. Now Jack made the comment that the homeless people are what down there? And it's absolutely true. What are they? They're believers. It's astonishing the percentage of the homeless who are believers. How, how does God feel about that? There is no partiality with God. None. And there should be none with us. So keep that, because that context is showing up. That's a James 2 thing. That's a Romans 2 thing, but it's really a James 2. Uh, that is the context of the chapter uh, chapter 2 of the book of James. And very few people notice that, by the way, which is a great shame, which is why so many problems come up with James 2. Okay, the Hebrew slave, Moloch, and the rebellious son. Let's put those all on the, on the list because they're coming up here in a second. The Hebrew slave is Exodus 21. Moloch is an, uh, a, a pagan god that was superheated in order to do a particular thing. It has its hands out. You're familiar with that. Until It was heated until it was red hot. And then the rebellious son. These three are connected in Scripture. When you find one, you find the other two almost all the time. And they're considered to be very difficult. i got all these books, hard sayings in the Bible, and they bring these three up all the time. Ooh, this is a hard saying. This is hard, and this is hard. Uh, Hebrews, uh, I'm sorry, did I write the Hebrew slave? I wrote, I wrote Hebrew 21, the Hebrew slave of Exodus 21. There you go. Makes more sense. They can't figure out this Hebrew slave problem in Exodus 21. That's where, of course, the Hebrew slave is pierced. That's an obvious picture of Christ. The Hebrew slave loves his wife. Obvious picture of Christ. But then the Hebrew slave is beaten. And if he doesn't die within two days, then there's no punishment for the master. But if he dies immediately, then we punish. And people have a great deal of difficulty with the Hebrew slave just as they do with the rebellious son who is stoned to death for uh, not obeying his parents. And they think these are very, very hard and very difficult, and they are actually uh, straightforward. And once you find the picture of Christ in them, as is always the case with the Old Testament, find the portrait of Christ, and the passage is going to clear right up and reveal itself. Look for the goodness of God instead of trying to decide that God is evil Every time you read something that's a little bit troubling for you, the first thing you do, or many of us have done, is decide that God isn't very good at this job, which is ridiculous. 
And you have just made a fundamental error. So look for the goodness of God, the justice, the holiness, the, the love, the mercy that he has. And remember that God has no partiality. Okay, first off, to repeat some of the first key points. These three passages, all three of them, the Hebrew slave, the Moloch passage, and the rebellious son, first and foremost, they are what's called death penalty passages. And that's what gets everybody all fired up. Because they don't understand why the death penalty is there. Why is the death penalty there? Let's just tell you, you don't, the rebellious son doesn't obey his parents, we stone him to death. Is that the right thing to do? It must be, huh? So what questions do you really ask? What's really going on with this rebellious son? There's more here than we can see. We're clearly not seeing it well. We're clearly not figuring out this correctly. So let's try to do that. These are three death penalty sections. That's how they're all linked together. They essentially become death penalty cases um, in, the, in the sense that the, the death penalty results in the event and that the act is premeditated. So we have premeditation involved here. So that starts you out in the correct direction when you begin to see the premeditation. Premeditation. It's hard to spell on a blackboard. It takes a trained professional. Premeditation is what? Back to Sharon. What is premeditation? It is an expression of what? The will. The will. When you have a premeditated act, that is a willful act. And premeditation, therefore, is very key in all these uh, chapters and must be carefully evaluated and thought through. In other words, what is the motive? Why is the rebellious son rebellious? Why is the Hebrew slave beaten to death? What is Moloch? Why are we putting babies in the hands of a burning idol and killing them? What's the motive for that? Because premeditation is key to all of those. What's the cause? How did it happen? What are the steps? Who's involved? Well, I like to say, what is the anatomy of the event? So after finding the, finding the picture of Christ, after that, that's absolute key. That's where you start. Looking for the goodness of God. Looking for His mercy and His justice and His holiness. Looking for Him, the ending sin. Finding the pictures of Christ, then you must resolve the premeditation or the motive of the killer, if you will. That becomes the subsequent step, along with the total context or the order of the passage. Let me demonstrate that. Exodus 21, right after the altar, which is at the end of Exodus 20, right after the altar, then he tells you, listen, don't touch it with your hands or your tools in the sense, don't make the stones of this altar. This stone has, this altar has to be an earthen altar and it's got to just be made of stones that you found. Don't touch a tool to it because you can't form it, which means humanity has nothing to do with a sacrificial altar, which means humanity's work can do nothing with regard to salvation. Make sure it's earth and so you get this, this picture of God becoming man and don't get up on the altar. Whatever you do. Right after that comes the Hebrew slave who is pierced because he loves his wife and his children 
and his master, and he goes to the door where he is pierced. At, right after that, after the altar comes the law of the altar, comes the Hebrew slave, and then the sold daughter. What's the obvious question on the sold daughter? Who's sold into what? Slavery. Who sells their daughter into slavery? Who does that? Why? What's the motive to sell your daughter into slavery? Is it money? No, it's not money. And it is obvious when you read the text that the person that sold his daughter into slavery did not do it for money. So why did he do it? Right after the sold daughter comes premeditated killing and then the rebellious son. So in Exodus 21, I have a rebellious son. And then the contending men, and now the beaten slave, and then the woman with child that gets hurt. What's the obvious question with that? Why does the woman get hurt? How does she get hurt? Who hurts her? And then the law of retaliation or the principle of retaliation. So in order to solve the Hebrew slave of Exodus 21, as I've said previously, the order has to be determined. You have to look and notice the order because the order explains the meaning or the order is essential to determine the meaning. Um, so I submit that the, that the order builds and connects uh, each part. So in other words, the, the law of the altar explains why the Hebrew slave pierces himself and loves his family. And that explains this, uh, the sold daughter. And the sold daughter explains the, the premeditated killing. And the premeditated killing explains the rebellious son and so on. You have to have the order figured out. And then you see this building of uh, each on each part, the, the previous part and the next part. And hopefully it's obvious that Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21 is more information on the rebellious son. So what do I got to do? If I want to figure out the rebellious son of Deuteronomy, and everybody struggles with this, it's all over the Internet. If I'm going to figure out the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, what do I got to do? I know that the rebellious son is in Exodus 21. Well, obviously, I should put Exodus 21 with Deuteronomy 21. I better go around and gather all the rebellious sons. What do you suppose Leviticus 20 is about? It's about Moloch. Who else is in that chapter? Just take a guess. The rebellious son. That's why in order to solve the rebellious son, I've got to put Exodus 21 with Deuteronomy 21 and Leviticus 20, and that all takes me back to God has no partiality and the rich man in James 2 who I said was a what? A Pharisee. Very good. That's it. You're now done. You've got it. You can quit. You have solved the rebellious son. Okay. All three of those, Exodus 21, to repeat, Deuteronomy 21, Leviticus 21, all three of those are rebellious son passages, and all three of them are death penalty passages. So find the rebellious son, and then what are you going to do once you've found him? You're going to contrast him with somebody. Who are you going to contrast him with? Because he's contrasted in Exodus 21 with somebody. Who do I contrast the rebellious son with in Exodus 21? That's right. You all yell out, the Hebrew slave. So, there's my contrast. 
I'm going to put those two side by side. I'm going to go around and gather up all the piercing, all the loving of the Hebrew slave, and I'm going to put it side by side with the rebellious son. And that's going to help me figure out those passages. How easy is this? Piece of pie, easy as cake. And all of this will clear up for you if you'll do that. Okay, so let's go ahead and prove to you where the rebellious son is. I have a new time to worry about now. That's really weird. I looked up there and said, man, I got two more hours to do this. That's great. (laughs) Let's take on Leviticus 20 first. That's very tough for people. And it shouldn't be. If you know Leviticus 20 is about what? I'm going to read it and you're not going to know what it's about. You're going to think it's about something and it is about that. But what is it really about? What is Leviticus 21 really about? Do it. You can do it. What is it? I will give you a clue. It is not about the Hebrew slave. So that leaves the rebellious son. Okay, so let's read Leviticus 20. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, again, wow, again, you shall say to the children of Israel, so have we said it before? How'd that work out? Again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever of the children of Israel or of the strangers who dwell in Israel who gives any of his descendants to Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. Now, who is Moloch? He is a pagan idol. He's made out of metal, I guess, or stone. I'm not totally certain if the uh, what kind of metal capability. I know they had quite a bit, so I assume the Ammonites had a metal a Moloch, at least at some point they did, and they heated him to temperatures of uh, probably a thousand degrees Fahrenheit, so he's red hot, and his hands are extended, and the point of it was, when your baby was born, you took your child up, and you put it in the hands of this pagan idol, and it was burned to death. That's Moloch. We have the modern equivalent, by the way. Whoever of the children of Israel or any of the strangers who dwell in Israel who gives any of his descendants to Moloch, he shall be surely put to death. Does that make sense? If you're burning your newborn children up, what does God say to you? You're hopeless. i got to get you out of there. i got to protect the nation of Israel from you because what are you? You are profoundly evil. And that evil will spread. So anybody that does that, how much did it happen? Obviously, i got to say it what? Again. Let me continue. The people of the land shall, set, shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people, which means to kill him. Because he has given of his descendants to Moloch to defile my sanctuary and profane my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man that does this, make the modern equivalent. 
If you let this happen, when he gives of his descendants to Moloch and they do not kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family and I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit adultery or harlotry with Moloch. And the person who turns to mediums and unfamiliar spirits to prostitute himself with them, I will set my face against that person and kill him. Cut him off from his people. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God, and you shall keep my statutes and perform them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. For everyone who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He has cursed his father or his mother. His blood shall be upon him. Okay. Did you get that? How did it end? I talked about Moloch. I go to mediums. And then I go where? To the rebellious son. The one who curses his mother and father. And I want you to notice the rebellious son. The one who curses the mother and father, he shall surely be put to death. He's exactly the same as who? Let me read it up here. Any of you, that man who gives of his descendants to Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. Everyone who curses his father or mother shall surely be put to death. What is the difference between the rebellious son and the one who gives Moloch his child to die? They're the the same. The penalty is the same. There's an equivalency, isn't there? Surely be put to death. The rebellious son is connected to the one who gives his children to Moloch. Both are cut off. Both are put to death. The obvious question becomes, how are these equivalent? Because they are equivalent in the text. Moloch is child sacrifice. How is that horrible act somehow the same as the one who curses his father and mother? They are side by side. Both receive the death penalty. The correspondence in the text is unmistakable. They're purposed to be side by side. They're intended to be linked. To God they are what? They're equal. Just like the one who turns to mediums. So, that should make us stop. huh? Clearly, there's a great truth here. How are they the same? Why are they the same? How is this so? And I want you to consider for a while, for a second before I move on, because i got a lot to cover, and I'll have to clean it all up next week for you, but I just want to make it obvious what we're doing. I want you to think about the anatomy of Moloch. How many people does it take to superheat? First, how many people does it take to build one of these Moloch things? Who made it? Who sat around? It's kind of like watching the stupidest commercial you can on television. And I know you can think of the stupid commercials that you watch. Most of them are addressed towards what age group? That's right, Seth. And they are profoundly stupid. But somebody had to say, I have a really good idea. We have a meeting. We have a committee meeting. And we pick that commercial. First, somebody had to say, I have a great idea. And somehow that stupid commercial gets out to the airways and is somebody pays for it. 
And they pay to have somebody play it. And they're positive it's going to work. And they're right. No one ever lost money betting that people are stupid. But there's also, so there's there's an anatomy to Moloch. Somebody has to say, hey, I've got a really good idea. There is the pillar of cloud overhead. There's Moses. There's Aaron. There's the Shekinah glory. There is the Ark of the Covenant. There, hey, listen, I hear the voice of God, so what I'm going to do is build Moloch. Well, who's with me? How many people does it take to build him? Now we've got to operate this thing, this killing machine. And God has to say, again, tell the people that if you do this with your children, I have to kill you physically. I have to stop you. And if you curse your mother and your father, that's the same. And i got to stop you. By the way, what is the curse? What does he say in the curse? So I want you to think about how many people it takes to build a mullock, to operate a mullock. What's the motive for it? What is the process of it? Okay? I want you to consider that. You're on the mullock committee, if you will. Put yourself there. Uh, how did you get there? Why do you think it's a good idea? What are you doing? What's your plan? Is it really about the money? I submit to you it's really not about the money. There are some that are fooled into thinking it's about the money. And yes, I understand in this country the Moloch industry is a billion dollar industry and very powerful and it controls one major political party. I got that. But it isn't about the money. What's it about? It's about the killing of the children. That's what it's about. Is that going to get me in trouble on the internet? Yeah. They don't like that. And I'm sorry about that. No, I'm not. Exodus 21. Now, look at the order. Exodus 20, 22 through 26 is the law of the altar. And it ends this way. Now shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be, nor shall you, I'm sorry, nor shall you go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness may not be exposed. Don't go up on this altar. That's how the law of the altar ends. You can't go up there because who can go up there? You're not acceptable. Only somebody that's acceptable can go up on that altar. There is no partiality with God. Who's, who can go up on that altar? Nobody. Don't even think about it. Because you're naked. It isn't going to work. So only God can go up there in the, in the likeness of man, right? So that's how Exodus 20 ends. And this is how 21 begins. Now! You see the connection? He connects that last sentence to this one. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free and pay nothing. I hope you see this, the... Uh, the uh, Passover pattern there, right? If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. 
If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, I love my wife, I love my children, I will not go out free. I will be a Hebrew slave forever because of the love I have for my wife and my children. Now, that is the words of Christ, as plain as you could ever read them. Then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall go and bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce him. Now, it has his ear with an owl, but you know what it means, don't you? It's the crucifixion. And he shall serve forever. That is a picture of the redemptive work of Christ. And then that is followed. So you got this fantastic picture. Who is the Hebrew slave? He is Christ crucified, right? Sacrifice. He's love. Okay? He's pierced. It's forever. He could have gone out free, but he didn't. What did he do? He sacrificed himself for the wife, for the children. That is followed by this. And if a man sells his daughter, how, why is the order the order? It makes perfect sense. Have I taught, let me go back. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters. And then I've got, and if a man sells his daughter. What's going on here? To be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not, how does she get out then? If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself. So a man has sold his daughter to be a slave to another man who says that that slave is betrothed to me or is going to be his wife. How good a story is that? Is that good? Right here I got tremendous good, don't I? Now I'm following it with what? Something horrific. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. How nice. He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has dealt deceitfully with her. How did he deal deceitfully with her? He bought her under what? Under a pretense that she was a slave that would be what? His wife. But she's not going to be his wife. What's he going to do? Going to sell her to a foreign person. No, can't do that. And if he has betrothed her to his son. Oh, I'm going to pass her over to my son now. He shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. And if he does not do these three for her, then he shall, she shall go out free without pain. For it. Okay? And that is followed. He who strikes a man 
so that he dies shall surely be put to death. That's a death penalty. Who's this guy? Is this the same guy as the guy that sold the daughter or the guy that bought the daughter? That's your two choices, right? He who strikes a man so that he, he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him to his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. By the way, that gets more complicated. You have to find the city of refuge and the manslayer and figure that all out. But if a man acts with premeditation against his neighbor to kill him by treachery, you shall take him away from my altar that he may die. Now you go around and find all the premeditated, treacherous people in the Bible. Where do you end up? That's right, Judas. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Who's that? That's the rebellious son. What does it mean to strike your father or your mother? What's it mean? Just whack them around a little bit? No. It means to kill them. This is a man who kills... His father. What's the obvious question? Why? Why does he kill his father? Is it premeditated? Did he lie in wait to kill his father? Or his mother? He who kidnaps a man and sells him or is found in his hand shall surely be put to death. So, he's a kidnapper? What's the obvious question? Who's he kidnapping? Why? How good a guy is this rebellious son so far? He's a kidnapping father killer. What did you think he was? And he who curses his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. Do you see? It's the exact same language, isn't it? As Leviticus 20. And by the way, it is the exact same language as Deuteronomy 21. He curses. What's the obvious question again? Why is he cursing? Why is he trying to kill his mother and father? Why did he kill his mother and father? If men contend with each other and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, he does not die but is confined to his bed. If he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time. And shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female slave or servant with a rod so that he dies. Oh, so this one dies and is beaten. So I have a Hebrew slave who sacrifices himself and is pierced forever who is beaten and dies. Who's that? If he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished. And then it goes on to a pregnant woman who is hurt with child and then the law of retaliation. So there's your list. What have I got from, if I put the rebellious son together with Leviticus 20, what is the rebellious son? What else does he do? He uh, burns the children. He burns his babies. Okay, to Moloch. Uh, he acts with premeditation. He lies in wait. He kills his father. He kidnaps. Does he sell his daughter? 
Well, I think you can make the case he does. So here's the rebellious son. He kills his father. He kills his children. He sells his daughter. He curses everything. He kidnaps with premeditation. He burns babies. Okay? And if you read Deuteronomy 21, you will find out that he will not obey. He's stubborn. He's evil. Calls him evil. The evil. So why are we stoning him? Because he's evil. And obviously evil. Is it a good idea for God to take out the one who kills his father and mother, premeditated, kidnaps people, burns babies, curses, sells women, and is evil? That's the rebellious son. So when somebody comes up to you and says, wow, the Bible sure doesn't make any sense. Just say, hey, maybe you ought to read all of it. Get the content. And finally, for today, I know this is where you all say yay. Christ talks about the rebellious son. And this is how you explain James 2. See how it all fits together into what? A nice, pretty little bow. Can it get any easier? Okay. Matthew 15, 1 through 3. Then the scribes and the Pharisees. Oh, how interesting. Guess which side do you think they're going to go on here? Jesus Christ is about to call the scribes and the Pharisees something. What do you think he calls them? Does he, uh, does he call them the Loving, sacrificed, crucified forever? Or is it possible he calls them the cursing father, mother, killer, kidnapper, premeditated, baby murderers, daughter selling evil? Well, let's go ahead and read it just in case there's anybody that hasn't figured it out. Then the scribes and Pharisees who were from Jerusalem came to Jesus saying, Why do your disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat bread. So all of a sudden they've decided that this is important. Now, this is the ancient of days. This is God himself in the flesh. The I am. This is what he says. He answered and said to them, Why do you also transgress the commandment of God because of your tradition? For God commanded, saying, Honor your father and your mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. So what did Christ, God himself, say they were? He said, The Pharisees and the scribes are the rebellious son of Deuteronomy 21, 18-21. They are the one who are the same as those who kill Moloch, or who made Moloch to kill babies. They are the cursers. They are the one who kill their father and their mother. That's what he calls the Pharisees. Why do we bring that up? Because who is the rich man of James 2? He is the evil. 
That's who he is. That's how it fits together. How is the rebellion being demonstrated in James 2? What is the man in James 2 doing? Well, in the rebellious son, the man, the rebellious son is cursing his father and his mother. And, and I just answered a question, so Sharon recognized that, please. Rebellion is being demonstrated by cursing the father and the mother. So how is that, how does that work? What exactly is this curse that he's doing? Why does the rebellious son want to kill his father and mother? And note that the, God's response to that is to do what? To intervene. Before he's able to kill the father and the mother, what does God have the society of Israel do? They kill him. How evil is this man? He's very evil. He is a destroyer. He is a premeditated destroyer killer. Which leads to the most obvious of the obvious questions. What is the most obvious of the obvious questions now? I have identified the rebellious son as a destroyer. A premeditated killing machine. Okay? So the most obvious of the obvious questions is the motive of Satan. Why does Satan destroy? Because he started out destroying. He had a lie, didn't he? What did he do with it? He spread it to as many people, angels as he could, and then ultimately to every human that he could. Why? Why does he want to destroy? What's his purpose? What's his motive? See, why didn't he just keep it to himself? I have a lie. If I spread it, I'll destroy everyone who believes it. And even the ones who know it's a lie. I will spread what? Rebellion. Everywhere. He's called what? He's called ultimately the first rebel. So whenever you see rebellion, you have to ask, what is the motive of Satan? Why did he go angel to angel, the abundance of your traffic, Ezekiel 28? Why didn't he keep it to himself? And so there's your contrast. You have to figure that out, by the way, for next week. The Hebrew slave testifies of love and obedience and sacrifice, right? And the rebellion, because he had to be obedient to be pierced. And the rebellious son testifies of curses, uh, rebellion, disobedience, hatred, and killing. That is what's going on between those two. Next week, we'll finish it off for you. Let's rise and be dismissed.